And good morning again, everyone. Welcome to those of you who are online with us as well. It is great to have you with us. Uh, and thanks for loving our children here at New City Covenant Church. And I will be honest, I forgot how fun it is to try to parent your own child in front of an audience. <laughs> uh, that's a good reminder today of how that goes. But uh, we love our kids and it's so important to invest in them. So good morning. It's good to have you here. If you're uh, new with us this morning or if you're just joining us, you've been back after a season of being away, we are starting, we have started a brand new sermon series that we've entitled The Benediction. And the whole idea is that we're beginning this new season, both in our lives individually and as a church, thinking about, about the end, with the end in mind, beginning with the end in mind, considering our legacy as a church. And so the benediction is this charge that pushes us out um, to acknowledge the different foundational truths that we have as a church. And so we split this up into four different weeks. We're in week number two. And this week we start out with, and he, may he push you out into the world. In fact, I just want to read this for you real quick. This is the benediction that we are basing our series on, and it goes like this. May you jump into the arms of Jesus, and may he push you out into the world. May you be healed as you participate in the healing of others, not because you must, but because you may. This is what you were made for. So we're going to jump in today into our sermon, but I'd like to pray for us and ask God to bless our time. Lord, we thank you for the sunshine coming through the windows. We thank you for the way that you've been wooing us all morning today, from the moment that we got out of bed till even this moment now, that you have been loving us, caring for us, taking care of us, whether we had a wonderful morning, an easy morning, or whether it was stressful with who knows what, maybe our kids. And Lord, we're just so thankful that you love our children. We're so thankful that you love us. We're so thankful for what you've done in this place over these many, many years now. And we ask God that you continue to move and may you get all the glory in this place. Lord, may you open up the words of scripture. Thank you for the story of Philip in Acts chapter 8. And I pray, God, that you would use that story to inspire us, to look forward, and to see the community around us that you are calling us to. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. I'd like to start this morning uh, to tell you a little bit of a story about a time I failed. And you'll have to decide if you want to judge me on that or not. It's up to you. But this was a time when I wish I had a different story to tell you. But it's important, and I think it sets up our text today well. I will never forget, probably in, in 2004 or 2005, somewhere around there, my family and I, we were living in West Michigan in a town called Muskegon. I was serving in a church called Forest Park Covenant Church. I was the youth pastor at this church, and I loved caring for the teenagers in that community. And the spot that I sort of hung out with these students at, mostly, was this little Burger King that couldn't have been more than three blocks away, right? And I don't know why Burger King was the spot for me. I loved maybe the, the, the food. I don't know what it was. But there was one thing that I loved to get, and it was these, these fudge pies that Burger King has. Have you ever had those? They are delicious. Now... 2004, I wasn't considering the calorie ramifications of those things, but I would get them all the time. And we would meet students up there, and it was a blast. Um, there was one time, though, in 2004 or 5, and I'll never forget this, um, even though it was sort of a non-event, it made a deep impact on my life. And when we walked into Burger King, I was meeting with the people that I was there with, and across the restaurant, you know, it's not a very big restaurant, but I noticed this young woman sitting by herself in a booth. And I'm not sure exactly what caught my eye about her at the time, 
But what I noticed about her in that moment was that there was something wrong, like something deeply troubling her. And it wasn't that she was crying. She didn't look disheveled. There was no physical kind of outward thing. There seemed to me to be a spiritual dynamic happening in her life right then. And I will tell you, I felt a deep sense of calling to go up to her and say, can I pray for you? Can I, can I talk? Are you okay? How are you? And actually engage her in some sort of spiritual conversation. And in that moment, just hanging out with these students and, and things, like, things like that, I started to have a crisis in my spirit. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I started coming up with all sorts of excuses of why I shouldn't go and talk to this young woman. Number one, it's kind of creepy, right? Like this tall blonde guy or whatever walking up to a girl at Burger King and say, are you having a spiritual longing in your life right now? You know, that sounds like a weird kind of maybe pickup line. Who knows, right, what's going on there? Um, but it felt odd. It felt kind of creepy, and I wasn't sure how to handle that. Besides, if I did walk up to her, what would I say? How do I start that conversation? Are you having, you know, a spiritual conflict in your life? And by the way, I am an ordained pastor who has got my master's of divinity, but I didn't know how to start that conversation. Um, and then thirdly, I thought to myself, surely this isn't a prompting from the Spirit, right? Surely it's not something that God has told me and inspired me to go do. And I really just dismissed it. And I'm sad to tell you, that today, uh, looking back on that time, I regret um, that I didn't do anything. I didn't walk up to her. I didn't say, how are you doing? Can I pray for you? What's going on in your life? I didn't get to be a part of maybe a story of redemption or forgiveness or healing. I didn't get to be a part of that at all. I didn't get to be a part of that young woman potentially finding and following Jesus. Now, our benediction that we are leaning into today, it charges us with this phrase, may he, God, push you, us, out into the world. May he, God, push us out into the world. And it's a tricky idea to be pushed. It's a very tricky idea, and I tried to explain it to the kids, right? There are times where we don't want to be pushed. And frankly, we get a little bit offended when somebody pushes us. And then there's those times in our lives when the nudge is exactly what we need. Now, in contrast to my story, where I think I failed to follow the Spirit's lead, our scripture text in Acts chapter 8 teaches us about a man named Philip. You've probably read this story a thousand times, and yet I don't think there's a better centering text for us in this new season as a church. God pushed Philip out into the world so that God's glory could be shown in this life of this high-ranking official, the Ethiopian eunuch, the Bible says. And so let's dig into our text and let it speak to us a little bit. What do we know? First of all, the first thing we know about the text is that this was a story of Philip the Evangelist, not to be confused with Philip the Apostle, which you read about more in the Gospels. Philip with the, the evangelist, we hear all about his, his adventures in Acts chapter 8. We actually meet him in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, it says that he was commissioned and prayed over as a deacon in the church in Jerusalem. There was a number of deacons that were prayed over in the church in Jerusalem. And this was a time where two things are very, very important to know. Number one, uh, the church was expanding rapidly. People were coming to faith in Christ. 
the resurrection of Christ was being told around the region and the church as we know it was being established and rooted. It was expanding in immense ways. But also, secondly, we know this. There was great persecution that was beginning. There was about to be a season in which all those that followed the Jesus way would be persecuted. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, if you turn back in your text and you don't need to do it now, you read about um, the stoning of one of these deacons, Stephen, who was murdered for his faith because he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when that happened, the Bible literally says that all of these deacons spread out and that they preached the word of God wherever they went. They scattered. And in Acts chapter 8, in verse 5, it says this, those who had been scattered and preached um, and preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down then to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And so uh, there was an interesting kind of journey where Philip had. He goes to Samaria where there was tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And yet Philip, even though he knew this tension exists, he crossed boundaries to reach the people in Samaria. He went to a place that the Spirit led where there was boundaries between him and these Samaritans, and he preached the word of Jesus. Now, it's interesting to hear this because when he was in Samaria, and I want you to check this out, it says that he was very successful preaching to the multitudes, that there was people there that were captivated by Philip's teaching about Jesus, and multitudes came to Christ. People were healed, and the Bible says that there was great joy in the city all because Philip obeyed to the multitudes. And we can understand what this kind of great joy would feel like because any time in our lives when we've been a part of some movement of God, there's been great joy. We love to be in the space where God is at work. Think about this in your past when maybe the Lord did something incredible in the life of one of your neighbors. Maybe you were here and you celebrated a baptism. Maybe you were a part of a mission movement somewhere in the world and you saw people come to Christ. There is great joy when God is on the move and we love to stay in those spaces. And sometimes we get even comfortable in that place. But sometimes, like Philip, God calls us to go out on what I will call a wild adventure for the Lord. God pushes us out of those comfort spaces into the wild. And it says in Acts chapter 8, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road. Now, if Jamie and I would have set this up ahead of time, I was thinking how great would it be when that phrase, the desert road, is spoken, maybe we play some dark music behind it, right? Because Philip goes from this place of great joy to the desert road. Dun, dun, dun. And that's kind of how it happens, right? And I can only imagine how Philip must have felt in that moment. Like, there's people being healed, people coming to Christ. We're preaching to the multitudes. Think of like big church kind of movement. And all of a sudden, God says, nope, you're done there. It's time to move on. Go to the desert road. The desert road. What a calling. And this desert road would go down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so Philip, having been very successful in Samaria, bringing the good news to that community, was told now by the Spirit of the Lord to go down a different path. It maybe didn't look awesome to, awesome to him at the time, but Philip obeyed. And because he obeyed, oh my, was God about to do something amazing if Philip would just listen. 
God was about to show his glory and he gave Philip an opportunity, listen, to participate in the work of God in the world. In this next situation, God calls Philip from preaching to a multitude of people and instead to go and care for just an individual. It's a good example for us. Sometimes God calls us to a multitude, a big crowd of people, to big movements of God, and sometimes God calls us to the one. So verse 27, we continue on in our text, and it says this, so he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury, a treasury of the Kandeke, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. A few thoughts about this part of the text. Number one, isn't it amazing how in tune with the Spirit Philip was? Somehow he had created margin in his life to listen and follow. To listen and to follow. And if you're anything like me, that is very difficult for us to do. We are driving our kids around so busy. Our lives are so hectic and chaotic. Everything is so busy. Sometimes it's hard to slow down and listen for the Spirit's leading. But Philip is an example of what happens when we do. Second thing is the Ethiopian, was found, Ethiopian found God by reading the Word of God. It reminds us of the power that's in the text. This Ethiopian was a successful man, yet he didn't, that didn't answer all the questions of his life. That every person, no matter how successful, has a deep spiritual longing in their life. Verse 30 and 31 says this, Then Philip ran to the chariot. What an interesting example that is. Metaphor even. That he ran to the chariot. And, and he heard the man reading the Isaiah the prophet. And Philip says to him, Do you understand what you are reading? How can I? The Ethiopian eunuch said unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. I love that it says that Philip ran up to the chariot, and I wonder what is so urgent in our lives that we run to? What is so important to us that we cannot wait to get out and go and follow the Spirit's lead to it? It took boldness to go up and speak to the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian was a rich man, maybe even a person of like celebrity status. We don't really know, but this person had power. And for Philip to humble himself to the call of the Spirit and to ask this question was pretty remarkable. And Philip asked a good question. It's an inoffensive and yet subtle and gracious offer to explain the passage to the Ethiopian if the Ethiopian was interested. And the Ethiopian was ready to respond to the gospel because God had been working on his life already. And Philip gets to intersect with the work that God was doing and participate in this Ethiopian being transformed by the work and love of the Holy Spirit. So the rest of the story we know then is that this Ethiopian committed his life to Christ and the Ethiopian then requested to be baptized and it shows this incredible celebration story of a man humbling himself and coming to Christ. And the man was baptized and there was a celebration. It's a powerful story of how we are called to go out into the world. And so I say to you again this benediction, may he, God, push us all out into the world and experience stories like Philip. Now let's just talk about the world we live in for a minute. If you'll indulge me, I'd love to wrestle with this with you for just a second. And there's two things 
that I want to name about the world that are really important that I think are helpful for us. Two phenomenons that we're dealing with that are very important for us as a church and as individuals to wrestle with. And the first one is this. We live in what's known as an increasingly post-Christian context. And I'll talk about that in a second. The second thing that is so important is that we also are living amongst what is known as the rise of the nuns. N-O-N-E-S's. The rise of the nuns. Chris, can you forward that for me? Thank you. You already did. My bad. So let's talk about the nuns first. N-O-N-E-S's. The first thing about the nuns is, number one, they are religiously unaffiliated. These are people around our lives, in our lives, around our community that have no allegiance, no affiliation, no sort of connection to a deeply religious faith. They're religiously unaffiliated. When given the option to check a box on like, let's say the 2020 census, they check the box that says, I am nothing. I'm not related to any sort of religion. It's the rise of the nuns. And today's statistics, and I would guess that since the pandemic, this has only gone up. Um, But before the pandemic, we used to say this, there was one in every four Americans that identified as a nun, and it makes them the largest religious group in the United States. One in every four identify as nun. I have no religious connection. And if you look at the younger generations, let's just say adults younger than 30, that number is like one in three. Nuns are the largest group in the United States right now. And for the most part, they are former Christians. Maybe they grew up in the church. Maybe they had uh, they grew up in a youth ministry or a family at some sort of church, and they've rejected their faith and they've left. And if you are any kind of social media mogul, which I know many of you in this room are, you will just float through different TikTok scrolls and you will see all the movements of ex-evangelicals, all these people have rejected different faith contexts. Some of it is very, very good, by the way. Some of it causes us to ask the right kind of question, but it shows the rise of the nuns, these people that have pushed against the church. When it comes to content, when it comes to tradition or orthodoxy, nuns have went from I believe to maybe to it's just not for me. And they'd much rather sit around and drink their coffee and have community with other people on a Sunday morning than be here with us in church. Uh, I think that these nuns are one of the greatest mission fields for our church to consider how do we care for and reach in today's world. But then there's also the continued rise of what's known as post-Christian culture. There's an author who writes a lot about this named James Emery White. You might want to check him out sometimes. And he says this, there are more than four former Christians in today's church than every one convert to Christianity. Say that again. There is more than four former Christians in, in our community than there is to one convert in our, in our world today. In fact, the research um, giant named Barna, you've maybe seen them before, they say that half of the nation's adult population now qualifies as post-Christian meaning they are after whatever Christian belief used to be there, we are beyond that. We are after that. It is over. And the younger the generation, the more post-Christian it gets. Post-Christian culture does not have any memory of the gospel. It's forgotten its heritage, its spiritual heritage. The memory of the gospel as gone, and it has created incredible spiritual illiteracy. And this is not just the sensibility of the good news of Jesus, or even the organization of the church. This is an era, we are living in an era where what made 
us Christian back in the day no longer is a place of value in any way. The respect for it is even gone. We are post much of that time. Christianity is not the dominant force around us anymore, and it should cause us to think about how do we reach this world? Because I really believe where these kind of crises exist is an incredible opportunity. Maybe to better explain this post-Christian end-of-memory kind of dynamic that we live in, I'll just say this. A friend of mine um, named Ben Kearns, he's a pastor out west, he wrote a book called From the Palace to the Pen. And he uses this example in From the Palace to the Pen to try to help people understand what this post-Christian context looks like, this end-of-memory. And he uses the story of the prodigal son. Everybody's heard the story of the prodigal son. It's a beautiful story. It's one of the best stories we commit our faith to, right? This, this son who grows up in the good, good father's house, and the son rejects his father's values, and he says, Father, I want my inheritance. I want to go live on my own. So the father, being a good father, gives him his inheritance. He says, go, my son. You can do whatever you need to do. And the son takes his inheritance. You know the story. He squanders it. He lives wildly, the scripture says, and he goes out and he finds himself destitute, working for some pig farmer in a pig pen, and he's serving the pigs their food because he's lost all his money. He's lost all his belongings. He's been rejected from all of society. And remember, he thinks about in that moment that even these pigs eat better than me. If I could just go back to my good father's house and be a servant there, this would be a better life than living in the pig pen. And so we know the end of the story. It's a beautiful story, right? Where the, the son gets up, brushes himself off, and he goes back to the good, good father. And what's the good father waiting for? Waiting to embrace him and welcome him back. It's an incredible story of redemption. But my friend Ben flips that. He says, living in a post-Christian culture is different. The prodigal son story would be different. It would be that the son would find himself destitute in that pig pen, living in that space, and instead of making the decision to go back home to the good father, the son would say, I need to figure out how to get out of this pig pen on my own. And he said, I would, so he says that the son gains the trust of the farmer, and he starts to have more responsibility in the farm. He meets the farmer's daughter. This is a new narrative, right? And he meets the father's daughter. They fall in love. They get married. So now he's the son of the now he's the son-in-law of the farmer's daughter. And they get older. They have kids. So now they have a generation that they just started, and it's a generation removed from the good good father. And their kids get older, and there's like some memory of this good father, but there really is a new narrative, and it started in the pig pen. And their kids get older, and they find spouses. They get married, and they have kids. Now you have two generations that are removed from the good father. You follow me on this? I need to see some. Head nods on this, okay? And their kids get older, and they get married, and they have no memory, no heritage. That spiritual good news of the good father is gone. It's been forgotten. And in many of our families, in many of our contexts today, that is the situation we are serving in, where there's no memory of the gospel. We live in a community surrounded by beautiful neighborhoods where families have a God-sized hole in their heart and they have no understanding or memory of how to fill it. That family heritage of our faith has been passed down. You know, it makes me wonder how the church should pray. By the way, a little side note, in November, um, we are going to spend the whole month of November um, in a kind of a season of a call to prayer. This is a new chapter for us. We talked about this, this, this last week. We'll talk about it many more times. This is a new season for us. What better way to start that season than through prayer? 
So November, I'm going to invite us all, the entire New City community, to be praying. But how should we pray when we think about the future? Should we pray for revival when there's nothing to revive? Or should we pray for a new movement of God, a spiritual awakening in our community? And it's got to start in us. I would say this, we should be praying for revival and we should be praying for a new movement of the Spirit. That is what's needed in the world today. I wonder in all these changes in our world and in our lives, where is God calling us to? And I ask that to you as a very intimate and personal question. Where is God calling you to? And where is God calling us to as a church? We know that we are part of a Christ-centered, a Jesus-focused, God-get-all-the-glory movement. And New City Covenant Church is a mission outpost. We're talking, let's go back to the grassroots of our faith because that is the world we live in. Where it is so offensive to be a Jesus follower nowadays, we are in the middle of a grassroots, Jesus-centered, mission outpost movement. I can't think of a better place to be. And it makes me wonder, where are we called to? And it's not a baited switch. It's an authentic posture of following the Spirit's lead to a world that frankly doesn't know what they're missing. You don't have to be perfect to tell somebody about Jesus. You have this incredible gift to hand somebody else. Where is God calling us all to hand that off? The Covenant Church Covenant Church denomination of which we are affiliated as a denomination, denominational church, uses a definition for evangelism, which to some people maybe is a bad word, but let's not get into that right now. But it does have an evangelism definition. I actually love this evangelism definition. It says this, and it'll be on the screen. Chris, if you can help me with that. It goes like this. Anything I do, anything I do, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to help a person take one step closer to God. This definition is scandalous. I love it because it says anything you do, you can buy, you can buy somebody Starbucks in the line, you know, for the person behind you. And that's a blessing. That's a gift. That's evangelism. It's blessing your neighbor by shoveling their driveway or giving them, I don't, you come up with the idea. It's anything I do in cooperation with the work that the Holy Spirit's already doing. Anybody that we've ever had a spiritual conversation with on any level is in participation with the Spirit of the living God. It's not our, you know, good words or great investment that helps anybody be saved. It's always about Jesus. What a great definition for us. And I feel like this is the place that we are in as a church. And so I'd like to apply it and I want to close with this. Um, Think about Philip for a minute. Philip... um, we have different spaces in our lives like Philip did. And Philip basically had three spaces that he lived in in Acts chapter 8. Number one, he came from Samaria. And in that Samaria, we see the multitudes, okay? And so let's just call that for a minute the word big. And secondly, then he was called to this desert road, which led him to smaller spaces. So just bear with me on the metaphor a minute. So let's call that small. And then thirdly, we know that Philip was called to the one. Big, small, one. Each of us in our lives, following Jesus the best we can, not called to perfection, called to be obedient, has three spaces in our life that I want you to think about. What is the big space in your life that God has called you to? 
the multitudes, right? And I will just throw this out there. I think this is that space. What better space to think about reaching them to the multitudes than when we can gather together and link arms and together follow Jesus to serve the masses? What, oh, what will God do through the faithfulness of New City Covenant Church as we continue the heritage of linking arms and going out and serving the world in the name of Jesus with all the love and the grace and the compassion that's needed to give a thirsty world the most amazing and abundant cold drink of water in Jesus Christ. This is our calling to the big, to the multitudes. We link arms and we go. But there's also small spaces that God calls us to. And what are the small spaces in your life? Is it the coffee shop that you frequent every week where you learn the barista's name because they matter to God. And because they matter to God, they should matter to you, right? Is it maybe your coworkers who you have lunch with on the regular, maybe a couple times a week? Or is it your kid's soccer team parent group that you are in regular rhythm with? What is the small space that you are in regularly that God has called you to? Because there are people in that world that have no memory of the gospel in their life and they're looking to you maybe for a better way, better example. And I don't want you to hear from me that I'm asking you to be a pushy uh, sandwich board Christian. There's maybe a space for that in the world. That's not necessarily what I think we're called to do. Philip actually was inoffensive in the way that he addressed the Ethiopian eunuch. Everything in our world is so polarizing today. The best gift that we have to give is our gentleness, our humility, and our tenacity for the love of Jesus, right? Let your life overflow what it means to follow Jesus to this small spaces. And then thirdly, who is the one? Who is the one? Is it your neighbor? Is it your coworker? Is it a family member? Is it a colleague? There's somebody in your life that needs Jesus. One person. And the Lord is calling you to ask them the question, do you understand what you're wrestling with right now? And I don't know when that timing will be. You'll have to discern that as between you and the Lord. But there is somebody in your life, make no mistake about it, there is a big space that we gather together and we link arms and we serve the multitudes. There is a small space and there is one. And I wonder who God is calling you to today. Um, this week, I'll just close with this. I had an incredible, incredible coffee meeting with our founding pastors, John and Mary March. And uh, these are two delightful people. In fact, I had never met John before, so this was our first chance to get to know each other. Mary and I have known each other for several years because we have served the denomination together in a lot of different ways. We had two hours of just celebrating what God has done. Do you know, um, some of you know the story, but 13 years ago, there was a group of 10 people that started meeting in a living room and they started praying about what would God do with New City Covenant Church. 13 years ago, 10 people, John and Mary, in their living room. In their living room, they were faithful to the call of where God was sending them to. We stand on their shoulders. Now let's just name this real quick too. I know some of you are in this room and you are exhausted. You made it through the pandemic. You've made it through your founding pastor's leave. And now you've got this loud Italian pastor who's just yelling all the time. I get it. Um, God is calling us to more. God is calling us to more. 
And I would ask that each of us consider in this season those three areas, the big and the small and the one that God is calling us to. I believe God is not done with this church. And you are here. And I am so delighted. And I would ask that each of you consider how God is calling you to invest in this space. And then what are the small spaces God is calling you to? And what is the one? And we follow now this lineage of faithfulness. And I know a lot of you have been here for a long time. We follow the tradition, the history, the standard that's been set in this church for being faithful to the call of Christ. A lot of you have put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into keeping this church going. Thank you, God, that that has happened. And all glory goes to God in that. And we ask for more. We pray for more. And together we come together and we see where God is going. Are you in? I hope so. I am. And you know what? We're going to bumble our way through it, right? Like there will be times where we won't know what to do. And we're going to have to get on our knees and ask the Lord to bless our future, our vision. Where is God calling us to? As we try to raise up a generation of Jesus-following kids, which, by the way, super tough to do. Can you help me with my seven-year-old? I would really appreciate that, right? It's a really good moment. Even in the moment of uncertainty and crisis in the world, we get to call ourselves the body of Christ. What a gift and an honor that is. So may you be blessed as we go to the big and the small and the one together. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for this time and we thank you for this church. We thank you for the history that's represented in this place. I think back in what must have been 2009, and you gave this faithful remnant of a people a vision for what it would look like to be a community, a church, a mission outpost. Thank you for those 12, those 10 to 12 people, God. And thank you for all the people that have come since. Some who in this room right now came maybe in 2011, 2012, 2013, and were a part of the work that you've done in this place. We give you all the glory, God. Thank you for that. Even when this building and this property was purchased, what, in 2013, 14, what a gift that was. We ask for more of your holy vision as we move forward now in 2022. And Father, would you give us a holy vision not only as the, the wider body, but even in those small spaces that tomorrow, when we're on our way to work or whatever it is that we do, whatever place that we engage a small community, that you would help us to see that space differently with holy eyes, that your spirit would prompt us. And we think of the one, we think of the one, God. That one person, our neighbor, our family member, our coworker, maybe even a young woman sitting in a booth by herself at Burger King. And we ask God that you would give us the boldness, the faithfulness, the words, the humility to love those people, to help show them the goodness of God. Lord, we love you and I pray that you would continue to bless our community even as we um, continue to work through our own future. Give us wisdom and give us vision and may everything always point to your glory. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said together, amen and amen.